And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us today is the founder and director of Frontline Fellowship, Dr. Peter Hammond. And Peter, it's so good to have you back on with us again this weekend. Thank you so much, Dan. Great to be back with Redeemer Broadcasting. Just a little while ago, Peter, you mentioned that you could talk to us about Afghanistan, some of the history. And uh, I don't know about you. I suspect that you feel like I do. My heart is broken over the absolute disaster that has taken place in Afghanistan. And even today, I was talking with someone who will remain (laughs) way undercover, uh, that they're working to get people out of Afghanistan. And so efforts are still ongoing, despite the fact that our government has left them there. So with that as a lead-up, Peter, maybe you can tell us about Afghanistan. Yes. I've been in touch with a number of missionaries, Christians, including in Afghanistan, and with soldiers, military, who've, who've served in Afghanistan. In fact, my wife's nephew has served in the Marines on a number of tours of duty in Afghanistan and Iraq. And uh, I know some people who've been involved uh, from infantry, air force, uh, intelligence in uh, the U.S. military in Afghanistan. And I also know people from Britain. In fact, I know some South Africans who have fought in Afghanistan as uh, civilian contractors for both the British and the American uh, defense industries. So um, I've, I've, built up quite a perspective from different views of what's going on there. And I must say, this leaves me sick to the stomach as well. I feel absolutely uh, nauseated uh, that they have left so much weaponry in the hands of the Taliban and betrayed so many people behind. But uh, what was pointed out to me, first of all, by um, friends who fought in Afghanistan, they said, you know, it began with very clear goals to fight terrorism. And... Uh, go and target Al-Qaeda and the Taliban who had hosted Al-Qaeda. And they said initially, many Afghans welcomed the Americans and British and others as liberators in 2001. Mm. But the initial target of fighting terrorism morphed over the years into promoting perversion. And suddenly they're promoting radical feminism, LGBTQ gay agenda, flying the rainbow flag from the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, Uh, Literally, in fact, in June, which was declared um, LGBTQ month, the U.S. Embassy was pushing this. And you can imagine what that does to the Afghans, what the average Afghan thinks of promotion of what they reject as a perversion, uh, you know, from their culture, well, ours too. But uh, many Afghans who had welcomed America's liberators grew to resent this promotion of immorality and perversion. And uh, I am on record as saying back in 2001 already that one of the most important things America can do after going into Afghanistan is get out fast. Yes. And uh, I referred to several things. One is, if you look at history, the greatest empire of the 19th century is, without question, the British Empire. And the British had two major wars with Afghanistan in the 1800s. There was in the 1830s to 1840s. Uh, there was uh, in the 1870s. And actually, in 20th century, in 1919, they had another war with Afghanistan. Mm. But in each case, the British discovered that you could go in and you could win victories, but you couldn't control the ground. You had to get out after a while because the terrain is so rough and rugged mm. and mountainous and inhospitable to 
um, any kind of supply chains and ambushing is just too easy and the people are tough, rugged. In <laughs> fact, if you go back far enough, the Afghans gave uh, the Greek conqueror Alexander the Great uh, such grief that he bypassed it in the end because uh, wow. you can't control Afghanistan, basically. The Russians spent 10 years in Afghanistan and many called uh, it the graveyard of empires and it was somewhat of a graveyard for the Soviet Union. I've got pictures of massive graveyards in Afghanistan where you could just see, far as I can see, Soviet tanks, BRDMs, T-62s, the whole T-72s, the whole lot, all over the place, and the hind helicopters uh, rusting out there in the desert and on the mountains. And so uh, I think Americans going into Afghanistan should have seen and learned from history what happened to the British, what happened to the Russians, yeah. and the fact that... Um, uh, and I went on record right then in 2001 saying the most important thing America can do, uh, having ousted the Taliban from Afghanistan, is hand over to the locals as quickly as possible and get out. Mm. And then you can go down the history books as liberators. But the longer you stay, the quicker you move from liberator to occupier and then oppressor and then That's foreign right. devil and all the rest of it. So That's right. The, being there 20 years is, I mean, that's double the amount of time the Soviets were there. And we remember the 80s was filled with the wars against the Soviet Union after their invasion of Afghanistan. I don't think anyone welcomed them as liberators. No. <laughs> Christmas Day 1979, they, they came in. Uh, and while America went in, obviously, for a better cause, and I can, I can vouch for that personally, Heather Mercer was one of America's uh, missionaries in Afghanistan at the time. And uh, she's been a guest of ours, and we've had meals together, and she's spoken at our devotions. She wrote... Uh, the book Prisoners of Hope. And you'd recall that there were two American missionaries, two women, sentenced to death by the Taliban for showing the Jesus film to Afghans on their laptop. Wow. And for showing four Afghans the Jesus film, they were sentenced to death. And only America's invasion in 2001 and rescue by Navy SEAL team saved their lives. So wow. uh, I, I immediately, I was one of those who cheered when America took Afghanistan in 2001. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is a good thing. Um, this uh, The Taliban was so bad that there were only about three countries in the whole world who even recognized the government, <laughs> a terrorist government. Yeah. And uh, Sudan was one of the countries that recognized uh, uh, the Taliban. And uh, uh, it, they definitely saved the lives of those two precious American girls. And praise God for, for that. But you can't stay in another country for long without resentment growing. No. But when they moved from fighting terrorism to especially under Obama, promoting every kind of perversion that the local people will never accept. Um, you know, at that point, you've just got to say, well, uh, you can't expect God to protect you when you're actually working against his word. And Very true. So, so um, I, I think there's a lot of lessons one can learn. But uh, the, the other thing is, I, as a, as a Christian Rhodesian, immediately had a whole lot of things coming to my mind, which just brought back Deja vu, we've been here before. This, this vision of suddenly, without telling the NATO allies, U.S. starting to withdraw. Now, bear in mind, of course, Afghanistan was a NATO operation. America had uh, called in its NATO allies saying, we've been under attack, attack on ones, attack on all. And so every member of NATO sent troops to Afghanistan to support America in the fight against terrorism. And uh, I believe even right now, there's still... Uh, Dutch and German and uh, Polish and Czech and uh, British troops, they're trying to get their people out. And mm. uh, so, and they say, 
including the British government, that they were not informed ahead of time of, of America's withdrawal. And in fact, unprecedentedly, the British Prime Minister was stalled for something like a day and a half, or was it more than like two days, uh, that uh, President Biden would not answer his phone call. And here's the British Prime Minister trying to phone his and find out what's going on, and he was not being put through. Wow. Uh, which today's time of, of communication, um, that's actually inexplicable. It and is. Quite um, unjustifiable. Now, today we're talking with Dr. Peter Hammond, and he's founder and director of Frontline Fellowship. And I should also mention that uh, in his lifetime, he's carried out some, I think it's like 120 missions in war zones. And he's presented thousands upon thousands of sermons and Bible studies in some 36 countries. And uh, I believe, Peter, you yourself were captured and tortured. So you know more than the usual person knows firsthand what it's like to work in a war-torn country. And it's got to be terribly frightening to the people that are left behind. Yes, it is frightening and uh, terrifying to be left behind in the war zone. I've worked in eight, uh, I've been involved in eight wars, and I've gone through three revolutions, actually four revolutions, if you count the Romanian Christmas Revolution, 1909, which was a positive revolution as to overthrew <laughs> the communists. Um, and I've been imprisoned on a number of times in communist prisons and uh, um, been ambushed and, and strafed and bombed and rocketed and, and all of that. Well, this immediately brought back to mind um, an incredible exchange with Jonas Savimbi. Jonas Savimbi was the leader of UNITA, the Union for the National Independence Total of Angola, UNITA. And uh, here's a veteran Angolan freedom fighter, Jonas Savimbi. And I was, I'd taken in some American friends into his headquarters in Free Angola. We're talking about 1986 during the Cold War. And this was the hot part of the Cold War. This was the hottest part of the Cold War <laughs> in, in uh, Angola. And I was a guest at Jonas Savimbi's Unita headquarters at his breakfast table. And Jonas Savimbi said, it is better to be America's enemy than America's friend. <laughs> if you are his, her enemy, you will probably be bought. But if you're America's friend, you will certainly be sold. Mm. Now, Jonas Savimbi was not anti-American. In fact, he loved American history. He regularly would be quoting from George Washington, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, he looked up to America as a city on a hill, an example of faith and freedom. He hoped to emulate American principles in Angola. But he was referring to the U.S. State Department and its trail of betrayal. Now, you know, if you make a mistake, we're all human. Everyone makes a mistake. If you make the same mistake twice, you're stupid. If you make the same mistake three, four, ten, twenty times, <laughs> yes. you've got a hidden agenda. There's no way that the U.S. State Department is this stupid, but they have been appeasing America's enemies and betraying America's allies for decades now. Yes. Jonas Savimbi leaned across the breakfast table and said, do you know why there hasn't been a revolution in America for 200 years? We were all a bit at loss to know how to answer. And then he leaned over and he answered his own question. He said, there's no American embassy in America. Mm. Well, uh, everyone laughed and some squirmed in their seats. And there have been a lot of betrayals. Well, I can say um, in my experience in Rhodesia, uh, our Prime Minister Ian Smith, he wrote the book, The Great Betrayal. And as he said so eloquently, 
We were never beaten by our friends. We were never beaten by our enemies. We were betrayed by our friends. Now, Ian mm. Smith had been a pilot in the Royal Rhodesian Air Force. He had flown hurricanes and Spitfire, shot down twice. Half his face was really uh, burned away in um, uh, plastic surgery. Uh, one of his eyes, a glass eye. Uh, and uh, uh, Ian Smith had fought alongside the Americans against common enemies, only to be betrayed by the British Foreign Office and the U.S. State Department uh, horribly into the hands of Mugabe's Marxist ZANU PF, which has ruled and abused the people of Zimbabwe now for 41 years. So, uh, Zimbabwe is one of the foreign policy disasters, which is a heritage of Jimmy Carter's um, a legacy. And of course, Iran is another example. And I don't know how many people have read the Shah story, uh, but uh, uh, what uh, the last Shah of Iran has got to say about uh, old uh, Jimmy Carter and his foreign policy. It's terrific. Do you know that uh, the state of Iran was one of the uh, strongest economies in the whole of the Middle East oh and one of the greatest in Asia? And uh, under the 38 years of the last Shah of Iran's rule, Shah Mohammad Raza Pahlavi, um, they went through such economic, social, political reforms that the country has transformed into global power. Its national income rose 423 times over. Mm. Uh, it's, they had the fifth strongest armed forces in the world. Oh. Iran was America's most important ally and stabilizing force in the whole of the Middle oh, East. Oh, my. And Iran was betrayed into the hands of the Ayatollah Khomeini by Jimmy Carter's foreign policy. Jimmy yes. Carter did everything he could to betray uh, the Shah of Iran, just as he did everything he could to betray uh, the um, people of Nicaragua, who are good allies of yes. America, democratically elected in the hands of the Marxist terrorist Sandinistas who were supported by Cuba. And this has been well documented. I've got the books. Yeah. Uh, Ally betrayed Nicaragua. Ally betrayed China. Ally betrayed uh, Korea. And these just document so many examples of how the U.S. State Department has done everything they can to undermine their allies and to appease and arm their enemies. So, uh, if you just take Ally betrayed Nicaragua, uh, which is also the time of Jimmy Carter, also 1979, mm -hmm. and the foreword is by the U.S. Ambassador Beryl Smith, the postscript by U.S. Ambassador Turner Shelton. It, it quotes Lieutenant General Gordon Summer, Nicaragua was subverted from within, attacked from without, and the record is clear in this regard. The role of the Carter administration is shabby affair. Jimmy Carter's strategy of polarization used human rights as the operative principle to destroy the strategic position of the United States and the Caribbean Basin, as well as the Western Hemisphere. Well, now, these weren't just some journalists. These were American ambassadors and U.S. generals documenting the betrayal of the ally that Nicaragua was. One of the most strategic countries in Central America betrayed into the hands of Cuban-supported Marxists, which so encouraged Fidel Castro uh, that it encouraged him to assist further revolutionary upheavals in Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. It set the whole of Central America ablaze. Yeah. And this was not accidental. Um, I remember on my very first visit to America, I had the opportunity to hear from Oliver North. And this, I'm talking about now, back oh, yes. in January. Uh, it, it was January 1988. And uh, Ronald Reagan was president, and I heard Ronald Reagan as well firsthand uh, at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention <laughs> in Washington, D.C. Well, I also heard Colonel Oliver North. And as I heard him describe how he had time and again 
been commanded to lead his Marines to take a position in Vietnam, only then to be ordered to withdraw from that position. Yeah, it's insanity. To then be told to retake that same position, which by then was far more effectively defended, they would succeed a second time at greater loss of life, only to be ordered to withdraw from that position. And then a third time be instructed to retake that same position, which now was further entrenched with concrete, barbed wire, and more devastating yes. weaponry. And at greater loss of life, the U.S. Marines would succeed in taking that position a third time, only to be ordered to withdraw from that position again. And uh, I can still remember the shock and horror I felt listening to this first-hand testimony from a Marine Colonel, Oliver North, of the criminal short-sightedness or malicious treachery of U.S. government officials towards their own armed forces. Well, you know, on that uh, same uh, visit to America, I met General Ben Parton, who's an absolute uh, hero of America, the man who invented everything from Puff the Magic Dragon through to uh, cruise missiles, uh, precision-guided weapons, laser-guided mm-hmm. weapons, and so on. And I must say, um, General Parton had a lot more to tell me about uh, U.S. government betrayal, but he introduced me to an extraordinary uh, person, and uh, uh, that was Captain Red McDaniels. Well, Captain Red McDaniels was, uh, he's known as, he's actually Captain Eugene McDaniels, U.S. Navy aviator, and he's called Red because of the color of his hair, very tall man. And um, I met him, and I, I read his book, Scars and Stripes, the true story of one man's courage facing death as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. Well, he survived six years of torture and captivity in Hanoi. And mm. uh, when he came out, uh, Red McDaniels, who'd been severely tortured um, uh, after being shot down, uh, he became involved in the Vietnam POW MIA, Missing in Action Campaign, yes. to count the thousands of missing in action Americans, banned by the government. Well, by then he had become the founding president of the American Defense Institute, ADI, and he was documenting, he had planned to first document the trail of portrayal of American prisoners of war and missing in actions abandoned in Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos. But then he discovered thousands had been left behind in North Korea and China after the Korean War. Yes. And tens of thousands in the Soviet Union after both the First and Second World Wars. And he introduced me to the book, Kiss the Boys Goodbye, How the United States Betrayed Its Own POWs. And this led to a whole lot of digging out, and I must say, absolutely shocking, as you realize that there was a deliberate policy, which has been testified to. In fact, uh, you actually had, I don't know how many Americans noticed, but finally, after 50 years of suppressing and ignoring the evidence, the Senate Select Committee on POW MIA Affairs finally met in 1992. And testimony was given by colonels and others who served National Security Council staff under President Eisenhower and others, that it was the deliberate policy of the U.S. government to list as dead many of American GIs who were known to have been captured alive by the North Koreans during the Korean conflict. And that hundreds, possibly thousands of American prisoners of war were shipped into the Soviet Union for propaganda purposes and and for interrogation and so on uh, during the the Cold War, during the Korean War. Hmm. And that it was the policy of President Eisenhower to uh, ignore these and suppress these, and there were journalists who accepted money from the CIA to report the party line and ignore all reports on American prisoners of W POWs shipped to the Soviet Union. And this came to the conclusion that the U.S. government had lied and denied and uh, turned their back on their own uh, prisoners of war after both the First and Second World War. Well, then General Dmitry 
Volkomarov, who's the chief uh, in charge of the Soviet Union archives, he was summoned before the U.S. Senate Select Committee in 1992. And he tests, and he's written books on this too, by the way, uh, like on Stalin, uh, Triumph and Tragedy, and other books like that. Well, General Dmitry Volkomarov testified before the U.S. Senate Select Committee in 1992 that American soldiers who had been prisoners of war of Germany pilots shot down after bombing and things like that. And, but there were POW camps in what fell under the Soviet control at the end of the Second World War. So there were something like 22,000 American POWs liberated by the Allies, the Soviet Red Army. And he said that most of them were shipped into Stalin's Gulag labor camps in the Arctic hellholes of Siberia. And many were summarily executed by the NKVD, which was the forerunner of the KGB. And he had uncovered files of 49 American pilots who had been captured in North Korea, who had been shipped to the Soviet Union, and who held prisoners with 3,000 others near the Russian border. And there were also U.S. defectors from Vietnam who were relocated for propaganda activity within the Soviet Union, and with the agreement of the People's Republics of China and Vietnam. And he said he knew of at least 119 American prisoners of war of the Second World War who were shot out of hand uh, as spies or collaborators by the allies of the Red Army. This is after the Second World War. He knew of at least six American prisoners of war from the Korean War held at special camps in the Soviet Union where they were interrogated for eight years and then shot. Oh. Now, this general said his own father had been liquidated under Stalin and he had still not found any record of the circumstances, even though he is the general in charge of all the archives of, of Russia. He couldn't rule out the possibility that there had been even more mass transits of American, Korean War or Vietnamese War servicemen to the Soviet Union, but those records were still to be relocated. I mean, there's archaeological excavations to be done. But the evidence was huge, yes. massive, that, that after the American involvement in the First World War, they left behind thousands of soldiers who had been part of the operation from Archangel and Mamanx to fight against the Red Army, and then they were abandoned by the by the government, and Woodrow Wilson just ordered it, just suppressed, and they just got ignored, and they worked the rest of their lives in the Arctic hellholes. There was an American prisoner of war who wrote the book "I Found God in Soviet Russia," mm. and I was a slave in Russia, and I've actually read the book "I Found God in Soviet Russia," written by John Noble, and uh, he's an American-born U.S. citizen who was captured at the end of the Second World War by the Soviets, the Red Army, put in a concentration camp, but he managed to smuggle out a postcard to his family, mm. who then knew that he was up in the Vokuta Gulag and the northmost Urals in Siberia. And so public pressure um, pu pushed President Eisenhower to demand from the Russians that he be released. Because his name was known and, and his location, he was released, and he came back and wrote the book. Well, he had seen evidence of American prisoners of war inside Russia who were recognized as missing in action in the Second World War or even had been declared dead. Wow. But years after Mentor died, he saw evidence of them alive inside. So this huge impact and it was policy. The, as a top uh, leader um, uh, was, uh, because under President Ronald Reagan, at last interest was uh, galvanizing on the missing in actions and he ordered a major investigation. Good. And so they had a Colonel Simpson of the U.S. Air Force who testified that the Eisenhower administration 
had concluded nothing could be done to retrieve their men from captivity in the Soviet Union, so the reports were just buried. Oh, you know, um, I wish we could talk about this longer. I'm looking at the clock, and we're almost out of time. Um, Peter Hammond is on the phone line with us today, and he's got a wide uh, background of history concerning war and military. Uh, Peter, we'll need to wrap it up here in about two minutes. I think your theme here is right on the money. It's a theme of betrayal. It's a theme of, actually, can I say it, intentional failure on the part of Afghanistan and the United States, uh, intentionally closing the Bagram Air Force Base, making it all the harder for us to get supplies and people out. Um, This is not just a mild mistake. I'm sorry, folks. This was intentional. Yes. Uh, Look, I know that many American people are good people, but they need to be aware that the deep state, the swamp, has the blood of many innocents on their hands. And those who would treacherously betray their friends and their allies and others who trust them, I mean, Yalta Agreement, the whole of Eastern Europe, Operation Kiel Hall, Russians by the millions being forced back in Andestan, people who could even abandon their own military in Marxist hellholes and lie to cover it up cannot be trusted. And so I think it's so important for us. Anyone who's made an idol of government or has believed in politicians yes. needs to repent. Uh, you know what the middle verse of the Bible is, uh, Tan? The middle verse, Psalm 118, verse 8 9, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put your trust in princes. It is better to put your trust in the Lord than to put your trust in man. And so that's right at the heart of the Bible, the very middle chapter of the Bible, Psalm 119, middle verse. Better to put your trust in the Lord than to put your trust in princes or politicians or leaders. And so I think this is the message. If people are shocked at this, uh, bear in mind what Franklin Delano Roosevelt said. Nothing happens in politics by accident. That's right. If it happens that way, you can bet your bottom dollar it was planned that way. Absolutely. Well, Peter, it's wonderful talking with you today, and your perspective is always rich. You live in Cape Town. Uh, You've been in these war zones. And if someone would like to visit your website, what is the address? Yes, certainly. www.frontlinemissionsa.org. So it's frontlinemissionsa.org, that's a website, and you can email me, peter, at frontline.org.za. And we're recording this ahead of time, and before we uh, open up the record line, uh, Peter told us it's winter there, and we started recording at 3 o'clock in the afternoon here, but it was 9 o'clock there. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I must say, we've got the mountains surrounding us with snow, so here we are in Africa, surrounded by snow in the mountains, more evidence of global warming. (laughs) Dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.